This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hey, this is Morgan. Before we start the show, I'm just here to remind everyone that we are currently in the midst of a review drive here at Quick to Listen. If you're wondering what that is, let me tell you. Essentially, from now until November 16th, we're asking listeners to rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. If you do leave a review and include a question that you'd like Mark and myself to answer, and we get 50 reviews in the next couple weeks or until November 16th, we will tape a special podcast answering those questions. The main thing that you need to know is that we will only tape the show if and only if we get 50 reviews. So get at it and hopefully we can do this podcast for you guys. Thanks. And here's the show. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week, we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today, and I am here with Mark Galley, straight, almost straight from Morocco. From Morocco. Welcome back. It's good to be back, except for the weather. It was much nicer in Morocco. In your climate-controlled hotel room, huh? <laughs> no, we got outside a little bit. I, in fact, had to do get in all my steps, so I had to do a lot of walking at night. So That's awesome. You should totally talk about this during your precious moment, because I would love to hear more about okay. this trip. That's great. Who is joining us today? Well, Chris Seipel is. Chris is uh, President Emeritus of the Institute of Global Engagement, uh, which is a research, education, and diplomatic institution that builds sustainable religious freedom worldwide. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is an amazing organization. And he's the co-author of the Cradle Fund, IG's program to help rescue, restore, and return Middle Eastern Christians, among other religious groups, to a home where they can live and practice their faith free from fear. So welcome, Chris. Although I will say, you're way too young and good-looking to be a president emeritus already. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. It's good to be here. And I'm sure my wife will appreciate that comment. All right. Where are you calling us from? I'm in Seattle, the Emerald City. That's a great place to be based. I like that state. Well, if you like to get a rain tan. <laughs> that was Bill hey, Fox. man, we are that was 90 Bill... days into sun, only sun. You're kidding. You don't tell anybody who doesn't live here. Yeah. Oh, we've had one or two days of rain, but it's been remarkable. It's just huh. been gorgeous. So, so there is an advantage to global warming. Mark, you're so or negative right now. In Seattle. <laughs> well, that was Bill Cosby's joke back in the day. He said it rains so much, people are proud of their rain tans in Seattle. So that's, I'm stealing the joke. No, you're being salty. Okay, we are going to change the subject. <laughs> So, as of this fall, Nepal has criminalized Christian conversion and evangelism. While Christians make up less than 2% of the population in this tiny Asian country, their numbers have surged since 1960. For years, the faith grew up to 10 to 20% annually. But a new law passed in October could kill this growth. Here's essentially what it says. No one should involve or encourage in conversion of religion. No one should convert a person from one religion to another religion or profess their own religion and belief with similar intention by using or not using any means of attraction and by disturbing religion or belief of any ethnic groups or community that was practiced since ancient times. Those who break this law will be fined more than $700 and will receive five years in prison. 
prison. Support for anti-conversion laws isn't limited to Nepal's secular government. Ksiti's coverage of Nepal's decision was shared by Hindu nationalist activists, hoping to convince the Indian government to make the same decision. This week on Quick to Listen, we'll explore the prevalence of anti-conversion laws. We'll also take a look at the various ways that religious freedom is defined and practiced around the world. Before we get into this discussion, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And right now you can get our November issue. And Mark once again wrote the lead editorial for our November issue. Mark, any thoughts on this? Yeah, we had two statements come out uh, in our world in September, one called the Nashville Statement about human sexuality mostly, and one called the, the Reforming Catholic Confession. And it was about trying to bring all Protestants under uh, one umbrella of faith that they could all affirm. This would be traditional Orthodox Protestants. And I just use that as an occasion to talk about what are statements for, under what occasions do we tend do they tend to be more divisive, under what occasions do they, do they tend to bring us together, and made some comments about each of them. It's one of those editorials that's not a st- uh, line, you know, line in the sand or a stake in the ground. It's more let's think together biblically and responsibly when we're. Uh, entertaining signing statements. Yeah, might be more provocative than it well, sounds. Well, because we live in a we live in a time when people issue statements, and then if you sign, if you and they they it becomes a litmus test as to whether you're a good Christian or not if you sign them or not, which is absurd. Let me just say that a little more. There's very few statements that if you sign them or not sign them that that determines the statement of your orthodoxy. There's a couple. Nicene Creed would be one, but no one's ever asked to sign the Nicene Creed, but they are asked to affirm it. Uh, so I think we need to be we need to sometimes step back from these statements and ask what are they saying? What is their purpose? And are they really this line in the sand? Most of them are not. So if you're interested in reading Mark's editorial, which sounds like it could be a good future episode on Click to Listen, personally, you can do that by getting a subscription to Christianity Today. And you can get that at orderct.com slash quick to listen. That is orderct.com slash quick to listen. So Mark, I know you just told us how you really feel about statements, but why don't you tell us how you really feel about Nepal's anti-conversion laws. Well, whenever I hear of another country passing an anti-conversion law, I just kind of shake my head and think, well, what are they thinking? How can you stop people from converting? I mean, it's such a personal thing. I can see them passing laws for not proselytizing, especially not proselytizing inappropriately with forced conversions, enticements, and that sort of thing. And I understand what they're saying when they, you know, non-conversion, but it just strikes me as an absurdity that can only be a temporary solution to a problem. cannot possibly be a a permanent solution to a problem. So it strikes me as, sorry, Nepal, but I just think it's idiotic. Mark is telling us how he really feels about everything today. All right, I will tell you how I feel. I think that maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I would have had a different reaction than I do now, which I think I would have primarily interpreted this through an evangelistic lens in that how can you, like similar to you, how can you kind of actually stop this? And this is so heinous in many ways to curb, you know, missionary activity like this. Now, as someone who has read through different articles and seen around the world, different support for anti-conversion laws. I'm really interested in the geopolitical factors that go into this and the types of causes that encourage support for this. So in this case, Nepal's secular government is relatively new. And we reference the fact that Hindu nationalist activists are in many ways trying to promote this in their own country. And they've also been very influential in trying to dictate what's going on in Nepali politics as well. And so 
for that reason, I'm, I guess I'm kind of interested when people pass these, like, what are the other, what are the other elements that are making people act like this? This is a perfect paradox here. The old seasoned veteran speaking glibly and off the top of his head without thinking. And the young editorial advisor here, a producer acting reasoned and calm. That's great. I'm glad I discipled you well. I'm also a politics major, so that's why I'm giving you a politics That's great. I think you bring a good balance to it. That's awesome. High five, Mark. Glad you're back. Okay, Chris. So Nepal's government has only secularized within the past five years. Can you tell us maybe a little bit about what led their government to adopt these anti-conversion laws? This goes to your previous conversation, but I think it goes to what's the human condition. And I tend to think uh, a blend between the Senate and the House there, the seasoned and reasoned millennial with the glib (laughs) elder statesman. Uh, And I think the balance there is this. Um, I see things always through a lens of majority-minority relations. And the human condition, if you're in the majority, you like to keep it that way. And we're nice people. Just ask us. And everybody ought to be thinking the way we do. So 80% of Nepal is Hindu. It's on the border of India. The majority there is obviously Hindu, and they just had a Hindu, very friendly Hindu government take power under Prime Minister Modi. And all of a sudden, Nepal wants to be secular. India doesn't want that to happen. There's an ethnic minority uh, along the border, the Medici, who want to stay Hindu. And oh, by the way, most of the gas and uh, trade comes through the Indian border to Nepal. So now you have a combination of ethnic, economic, religious values and self-interest that say, hey, Nepal, you better be Hindu or else. And so you put that all together and people thinking, why would anybody convert away from Hindu? That's a Hinduism. That's a that's an insult to our culture. And that automatically creates a context for persecution against anybody who is not Hindu to include the Christians. And it's you see it in in every country in the world. So, yeah, help me. I can understand why a uh, India, which is a Hindu country and the current president identifies deeply with Hinduism, would say, let's not have any conversions. Help me understand why a secular government, which is trying to establish its secular credentials, would pass laws about religious conversion. Well, the secularization, quote unquote, is only in the past five years. And to Nepal's credit, they engage religious minorities, including Christians, in the development of the Constitution. But if there is significant economic leverage from an outside power, and then there is significant social leverage from within the country, it's not too hard to see politicians putting their fingers to the winds and saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't be secular. Maybe that's what the, the Constitution says, but in practice, we really need to be good Hindus and, and do these things, especially if we want the gas and food supplies, et cetera, to keep coming across the border. If I recall correctly, when Nepal was trying to pass this constitution, there was actually some sort of economic blockade that went on along the Nepali-Indian border. That's right. So in 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 some ways, I guess you could say that there's there's been a precedent for these types of actions or retaliation um, to Nepal, which obviously hurts Nepal far more than it's going to hurt India. Yeah, that's right. But again, brought it out to the global trend or the human condition, which happens to be a significant global trend right now. Look at Burma. It's the it's the bar, it's the Buddhist majority who are taking out. <sighs> everything on the Rohingya Muslim. Look at uh, Russia and the Russian Orthodox Church being against other Christian denominations, let alone other faiths. Uh, Look at America 
you can make the case now on some issues with some of the folks who are being nominated, but go back to the 19th century and the Blaine Amendment passed in 35 states, I want to say, against Catholics, which goes back to the founding. And oh my gosh, we better not have any papists among us because they're not the majority. They, they should all be Protestants. This is what human condition does. And it's actually uh, a rare thing where you have maturity. You don't have immaturity and insecurity among the majority. And to have that kind of security and to accept other faith and to allow for a free competition of ideas and beliefs as good for the country, that's not the norm. I'm glad that you're bringing up other examples. When I was researching some of this, I found that anti-conversion laws also exist in Sri Lanka. And obviously there's support for them among India's Hindu nationalists. Are these types of laws, these in particular, ones that ban conversions, predominantly something that you're going to see in South Asian countries? Or is this a type of um, religious persecution technique, I guess, that you're going to see in places around the world? I think it's going to be in places around the world because, again, function of the human condition, the majority wants to be in power. What validates that power? And when a faith becomes a religion, that it's so dogmatic that it has all the answers and removes mystery from faith and belief, and it, and it gains access to political power, it's rare that they want, people want to give that up. And this is, of course, the storyline of the Old Testament in the religious authorities versus uh, the prophets. Amos comes to mind in particular, or Matthew 23. Jesus has his toughest words in the New Testament for the religious authorities. The religious authority, when married with political power, that is an unholy alliance. You lose the ability to speak to power, but boy, the religious authorities and those who are in that kind of majority context, there's all kinds of perks that come with it. So you're seeing it in Sri Lanka, you see it in India, you see it in Nepal. It's not just a South Asian thing. It's, it's just a means of control, and we can go after those folks who don't believe like we do because we want to stay in power. Sorry to sound so cynical, but this is just what I've seen time and again. No, it's a, that's not cynical. That's uh, what we call the way the world is. Yeah, you know, you're right about that. Uh, let me ask a clarification question. So these laws are called conversion laws, and that's what I react to when I reacted in my comment, uh, because can you really regulate a person's internal state of faith? But it does sound like most of these conversion laws are, in essence, proselytizing laws, meaning they don't really care what goes on in the human art. They just don't want one person trying to convince another person to change their religion. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's, it's you know, these things are never just about faith. They are deeply rooted in the culture and geopolitical context. So the blasphemy, anti-blasphemy laws in Pakistan, for example, you know, technically, as any fair-minded devout Muslim will tell you, those blasphemy laws exist to protect all the prophets. So if you were to blaspheme Jesus, theoretically, there's legal standing to go after that person. But how many times have you heard that storyline out of Pakistan? Never, because they want to make up, they being people who are somehow threatened by Christians who have betrayed the culture, betrayed Islam, betrayed whatever, we're going to go after them and say their kids did this, or they put the Quran in the in, threw it in the ditch, or this Christian looked at this Muslim girl this way. You know, it, it doesn't matter. They use that as a means to go after it. So it's rarely that it's used for the intention of honoring a faith as opposed to going after somebody who you might have something against. Now, you're not saying, of course, that there aren't 
many advocates of this law, that, of such laws that are in fact religiously motivated also, or primarily. I would assume there are some really devout people who think this is a really just a good idea from a religious point Oh, of sure. Absolutely. There are devout people who truly believe this and truly believe if you blaspheme Jesus, you ought to go to jail. Uh, on the other hand, by and large, the examples that we have are often fraudulent. There, there are people using it, manipulating it for their own local economic political gain. And it's, by the way, it's good politics to, to say, what about, you know, those, those guys, the dirty, whatever, pick your, pick your minority and say, yeah, we're not going to let them influence our society. So it's always that, that mix, but it, the, the good politics is always the manipulation of a kernel of truth buried amidst the fake news, to borrow a phrase, to, to manipulate for your own purpose. Chris, you keep bringing up this part about how a lot of these problems are due to the human condition. And so it almost seems that part of the human condition is when you do hold a belief and you feel convicted about that belief, it can be really challenging to hold that belief in tension with also believing that other people can express their beliefs and that they don't fundamentally threaten yours, you know, maybe because they might persuade other people to feel differently or boost other people's thoughts or because they undermine something that you're trying to say. To what extent do countries that have strong, robust religious freedom, how did they arrive there seeing that as something that is normal and good if it kind of goes against the human condition? It's exceptional that these things actually happen. And it takes I, I always say the best of faith defeats the worst of religion. And the best of faith means you have to go, and the best of evangelical traditions, to go back to Scripture. And without getting into a, you know, a Calvinist, uh, Arminian argument, the Bible, you know, Joshua says, as for me and my house, Joshua 24, 15 or thereabouts, we will choose the Lord. We have a choice. You have a choice, people of Israel. What are you going to do? John 3, 16, whoever, whosoever believes, you have a choice. And so to allow other people to have the same choice is a hard thing to do because religious freedom largely gets interpreted by a majority culture, an ethno-religious majority culture, is religious freedom for me, but not for ye. And that, to live with your deepest differences, is a very complicated thing. Look at America's own race relations, right? We've got the Civil War, is essentially, it's over slavery and the exegetical responsibility as to what Scripture will validate. And that was between two Protestant countries about slavery who are also of the same faith. Just imagine how much more complicated it gets when the majority is Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist, and then you're dealing with other minorities, Christians among them. It's tough. And so we have to approach this with, with a great deal of humility. And when I'm overseas, I always start by acknowledging some of these things. Part of the reason Americans are so passionate about religious freedom is we don't want you to, to suffer through the sins and mistakes that we've made. And if we can find ways to do this, it's good for the economy, it's good for stability and security when people don't fight each other over this religious stuff. Is this a contribution of Christianity to world politics in the sense that to be able to say that faith is a matter of personal decision, what you and your house will do? I mean, we make a big deal about that in evangelicalism and in Protestantism in particular. But it strikes me, and we criticize that for valid, for good reasons. I mean, there's a way in which individualism can be overdone. But it does strike me, at the heart of a religious freedom agenda lies the notion of the individual's responsibility before God alone to make this call, and it's not the government's business. 
Yeah, and I mean, look at look at the evolution of the Catholic Church. If we were to have the Catholic Church with Vatican II, influenced by an American Catholic, uh, Thomas uh, Murray Courtney, Murray, oh, John, oh, John, Murray right. John Murray Courtney, John Murray Courtney, right? So, and you look at the example of Brazil, and it, it was ninety nine percent Catholic thirty five fifty years ago. Now it's only sixty five percent Catholic. To see with evangelical Protestantism uh, taking over that other 35%, as it were. That kind of transition from 99% Catholic to only 65 in competition with another faith, that is usually a recipe for lots of blood being spilled. But I think that's a function of what has happened to the Catholic Church since 1965 and Vatican II. But if you were to go pre-65 across the previous 1,600 years or so, the Catholic Church had some pretty strong opinions about being Catholic, and you know, hence Martin Luther and the Reformation. They didn't, every, you know, were every man's his own priest, quoting First or Second Peter. I'm blanking on that verse, which is a quote of Exodus 19:6, and a nation of priests. This is gets back to the Scripture and, and the freedom to interpret it and apply it, uh, hopefully in the context of community and Scripture and teachings in a thoughtful way. But everybody has to be able to make their own choice. And I think that's the cornerstone of civilization and the essence of a stable society. But boy, it is a hard thing to maintain because it's always easier to be defined against the other and to pick on the minority. Okay, so you guys are both talking about choice here, and I hear you on that. I'm struggling because it seems to me that the way that we are free to interpret our faith relies on our ability to say that, yes, we have agency in this. But it isn't some people being able to be able to practice their faith freely for them to be able to grow up and to foster religious communities where you are born into them and therefore you are a part of them and not just ones where you have to actively opt into it? And that's a really good question. Since the Protestant Reformation, we, we only live in a world uh, in which people choose. So th- in this particular instance, even though formally Catholicism is not something you— you choose in the same way you choose to be Protestant. Uh, you are baptized into the faith, and you grow up into it, and you get absorbed into it at some level. When you're an adult, given the state of the world, and there are all these other choices around you, you still have to make a choice to stay committed to your Catholicism, even though Catholicism is more is as much a culture as it is a religion. And I use cult, and I use that in a good in a positive sense. It's a it's a religious culture in which you are born into, nurtured, and raised in it. But there comes a point when you're an adult that you still have to make a choice to stay in it. In a sense, you have to make a mental commitment to be an adult in it. So this notion of religious freedom still applies to religions that are somehow a culture that you are just born into. Sure. The other, the other lens is this, is, is what is the basis for community and the, the gift or the blessing and the curse of the Reformation in some ways is the, the I, of course, it's an individual decision, but you can't spell out idolatry without I. And at some point, you start worshiping a God that always agrees with you. And the rest of the non the non Western world or the non NATO world, I is not the basis for community. The group is the basis for community. Now, the majority is the basis. Let me give you an example. So, I was up in Northwest Vietnam one time uh, among the Hmong people. And uh, somebody there had converted to Christianity. 
And of course, in the West, in the American press, now you have a cyber optic prairie fire where religion, Vietnam is persecuting all these folks and this guy converted and he should be allowed to live. Of course, that, those are all theoretically correct. But then you go actually go to that place and you say, what's the story? And in this particular context, it was a young man who was maybe not as responsible to the village as he could have been economically in the stewardship of the six pigs. And I got an opportunity to meet those six pigs. They very much wanted to show it to me. But here was the cardinal sin. When he started fighting with his family about his faith, he went into every Vietnamese home has a corner where the uh, ancestors are worshipped. And he went into that corner and knocked over all of those displays. And so now you've crossed the cultural line, which is, I don't care what you think, you have just betrayed the culture, the community, and the worship of ancestors. That's the issue. It's no longer about your right as an individual. It's about your responsibility to the group. That's the kind of stuff that has to get unpacked in, in these other contexts, because the I thing's important. But, you know, worship, for example, was never meant to be this journaling at Starbucks by yourself. It was meant to be in context of the community and worshiping together. I mean, this is what Revelation teaches again and again. And so there, there, there needs to be a balance between the individual and the group, and that tension needs to be maintained such that they're not in competition with each other. Once you bring in all these other factors, as Morgan pointed out at the beginning of the economics and the geopolitics, man, it gets complicated fast, and the right to believe what you want to believe gets pushed way down the list in the context of those other self-interests. Mark, I think the example that you gave is certainly fair. It, it In my opinion, it seems like it mostly applies to people who are growing up of certain faith in a pluralistic context, and that only in places where there other, are other options are you actively choosing something, as opposed to kind of accepting the only thing that you know. Right. Do we live in a world in which that, that, that reality exists anymore, given the connectedness between a travel, trade, and internet? That there is, we, is there anybody who lives in a world in which there is no choice? It does seem that there's still, I'm Chris, you've traveled far more Raleigh than I have, but it does seem to me that there are still a number of far more rural places in the world where they are not as exposed to the number of ideas and different faiths that we are. Um, and I think it may be important here just to say, like, I don't know always what access, like women, for instance, would have that if they are illiterate um, and not necessarily as exposed to as much cosmopolitan stuff of the world. That might just be some a, a default that they accept. Yeah, I think that's right. Let me give you another example uh, from Laos this time. So I was talking with a, a friend who was long time uh, engaged there, knows the culture backwards and forwards. It was tongue in cheek and with some gentle uh, mocking. He says, you know, what would Jesus do is a question that a lot of the world would never ask. That's a question for, that's a question of luxury, not unlike religious freedom as a single issue out of its context. Nobody's thinking that. They're just trying to live their lives and, and get it done. And, and I think that's a, a fair question for the church in America. It's not what would Jesus do? What is he doing? And how do you come alongside that in these kinds of places? Because it's not obvious, and they don't have time to, to think about that. And they want to get, to, and especially if they're a minority. And by the way, the minorities, as a minority, they have a different worldview of engagement, which is I've got to get along with the majority. So how do I honor their holidays? How do I honor their religious festivals? Those kinds of things while maintaining my identity as a Christian, uh, a Christian, a white evangelical 
majority Christian, which is now changing, obviously, and I think that's a healthy thing, we're going to be forced to look through the eyes of others. And there's a lot of stuff going on with that, obviously, which I think is, is a healthy thing. But in the rest of the world, then especially women, man, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that has to be thought through there in terms of uh, the theology, except in patriarchy and all those kinds of things where people actually have a choice. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. As an aside, you talked about different countries rank tend to rank religious freedom fairly low on their scale of priorities. There, and so it made me realize or just think immediately that there's hardly a country I've heard about or been interacting with. I've been on trips with you to Vietnam, for example, and they honor religious freedom there. Though we look at what they call religious freedom, and we don't necessarily think it describes the same thing we mean by that word. But it made me think that religious freedom is not only an important value. It seems like er most countries recognize at least formally that religious freedom is important. They just might think that there are other values that are more important. Is that a fair fair statement? Yeah. And for example, uh, China has lifted 400 million people out of poverty. Uh, Vietnam, according to the World Bank, from like 1993 to 2010 or something, I might be, I'm making that part. But it's over a 15 or 20 year period. They've 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 lifted the most people out of poverty uh, in in the shortest period of time. And they will tell you, well, you know what our our human rights are. Always at the top of that list is we sh our our people should not suffer from Agent Orange that you dropped on us during the Vietnam War. And then the second thing will be poverty, and the third thing would be education and then religious freedom. So this gets back to how do you engage the world as a Christian? And it also speaks to what, what is your, your missiology? Uh, because we think, okay, we have the right to proselytize and have let people make a choice. But sometimes I, I draw a, a contrast between proselytization and evangelization. Back to my friend from Laos. He's taught uh, intercultural missiology at a couple CCCU schools now. And he says, hey, I don't even want you going to Laos unless you've learned the language and can, rela can relate to their cultural context. Because if you can't relate to their cultural context, it's basically about you, as opposed to coming alongside who they are and what Jesus is already doing in that culture, as opposed to coming and saying, yeah, I kind of know what Jesus is doing. You need to convert, and here's my measurement of success. Uh, by the way, uh, Roger Williams was of the same mindset. He would not speak about the gospel with the Native Americans until he had learned their language and did the first ethno-linguistic study of Native Americans uh, in North America. And we're called to be obedient, maybe, and that obedience is success as opposed to defining success, which also leads to idolatry based on an individual-based culture 
man, we should just take a step back and go, hey, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to show up and shut up. I'm going to try and come alongside what Jesus is doing. And I'm going to be in the position to speak into that culture because I've earned the right to speak into the relationships. Now I'm evangelizing, not proselytizing. And by the way, I would say that's the model that Jesus gives us at the well in John 4. Let me ask you a question to get you into trouble. Given the fact that, yes, the Vietnam's a great example of, so you're a government official there and you're thinking, okay, I agree. I agree religious freedom is a good idea, and it's if it's expressed in a way that works in Vietnam. But right now I got people dying of hunger, and I got people suffering from Agent Orange, and I've got, I need to raise the level of uh, prosperity in this country, otherwise I'm not going to have a country. So religious freedom is important, but it's not a top priority. Uh, I mean, do you think that religious freedom should be the highest priority in every country in the nation? Well, it depends. And this now gets into how you uh, define it. And there are some people who would say there's not any religious freedom in Vietnam. I happen to disagree with that. And I think they've come a long way, like all of us, with a long way uh, to go. But Vietnam is, I think, the best case study of the following philosophical statement, which is, you can have religious freedom without democracy, but you can't have democracy without religious freedom. Another way of thinking about it would say, look, we're not going to go promote religious freedom as a classic human right. That should be done, but sometimes countries are closed to that kind of methodology. And what we found at the Institute for Global Engagement, it always comes down to how do you harness the government official's self-interest? So another way of doing this would be to say, okay, what are the issues that everybody has, it's in everybody's interest to solve? And can I bring faith communities to the table, to the public policy arena, and demonstrate that they have something positive and practical to contribute to that? Now I'm demonstrating that they are not only needed for their positive and practical solution sets, they're not a threat to the state. So an example of that would be uh, in China, we helped convene with several partners over a long period of time, seven years of relationship building and lots of meetings. But we had a conference on the environment, on the Tibetan plateau, and then back in Shanghai. Well, what does that have to do with religious freedom? Well, nothing. But if I have brought Tibetans sitting across the table from Han Chinese from Beijing for the first time in that Tibetan's life, a Tibetan Buddhist were to be Tibetans to be Buddhist, they now have a dignity and because they are now equal to the Han Chinese from Beijing. And that was what our experience was. They weren't so amazed at the conversations about the environment, although they had a lot of good ideas how to restore the environment on the Tibetan plateau, they were more amazed that they could be at the table as an equal. And these are the qualitative metrics of success as opposed to quantitative metrics of success that so many churches were built, so many hands raised for Jesus, so many religious freedom laws promulgated. There are different ways to think about justice and equality, but sometimes the best way is to demonstrate the practical effect for the common good that an otherwise ignored relig um, religious minority being told they had to be given attention to by outsiders from the West in Washington, D.C., we can instead say, hey, they're already a part of the solution. We'd like to help enable that conversation. That's a totally different approach than an adversarial one, which is what a lot of human rights groups do. Now, God bless them. There's a time to yell it from the mountains, the tops and name, blame and shame. 
But my experience has been that that actually does not work as well. It strikes me that, as I recall our trip to Vietnam, that one of the arguments being used in, I think it was mostly informal conversations, was that the Vietnamese government ought to give a little latitude to the new evangelical Christian groups because they tended to create men and women who tended to be better mothers and fathers, and they tended to work harder, and they tended to support community projects because they believed in loving your neighbor. And this was all good for Vietnam. So is that would be another example of uh, this this method that you're encouraging. That's that's absolutely right. And and those, if you recall, some of those observations were not coming from the Christians; they were coming from the government officials. Because now I've got less drunks, I've got less white wife beatings, I've got more orphans cared for, and I've got relief and development coming through some of these Christian NGOs that would not otherwise be exposed to the community. And so I think the, the story that, that comes out of that is how do you illustrate that practically to the majority faith? And so I think what you just did in Morocco, Mark, with Bob Roberts, and, and having pastors, imams, and rabbis together, starting with uh, building relationships and then seeing what they can do for the good of their city when they return to their cities, that's what's so important. Because you work together for the good of the city, everybody wins. But at the same time, you're not watering down your faith into an interfaith, touchy-feely, hop, skip, and go naked, go hug a tree thing. It's no, we actually have very deep differences with eternal consequences for how we consider the absolute. But we're, it's because we're not watering those things down that we enter into deeper relationship and therefore accelerate practical collaboration in the place where we live. But you've got to have people who are courageous enough to step across that boundary in a multi-faith way without watering down the faith. So I'm going to love you no matter what, but let's get to business and roll up our sleeves. That's amazing. So to what extent then could anti-conversion laws help to take away some of the cynicism that different religious groups do feel towards each other in the sense that they would bar people from accusations of trying to steal from me people or convert in a way that, you know, that that works against this other being able to affirm things? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's super complicated, but to give a simple answer, you've got to be, sometimes the, the outsider, the Westerner is the least hated, right? And there are opportunities to create reconciliation between among groups as a result of that. So in the, in the case of any of these South Asian countries, it could be that an outsider from Europe or America could ask people together to come outside of their country and have a conversation. The, the key thing, like what Mark just experienced in Morocco, is you get people out of their country working together and having conversations. So I now begin to see you as a human being. Uh, you're not a stereotypical enemy. And by the way, when we invite stereotype, that's when we dehumanize and that's when violence comes and that's where we prove the clash of civilizations. But if we're in relationship with one another and we actually think they're made in the image of God and there's a context that is safe where I can express what I think, then that's a different conversation. Let me give you an example from Pakistan. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in Peshawar and then down in uh, Banu, which is right on the border of north-south Waziristan. So this is Taliban country. And, but because of relationships that took a long time to build, I've actually spoken in Islamist madrasas, uh, and I've had uh, long conversations about these things. So I was on a rooftop in Peshawar one time having tea late at night, and I had a, a very good Muslim friend walk me through the Islamic jurisprudence of why blasphemy laws don't work and that apostasy laws don't work and are inconsistent with Islamic law. 
And I'm thinking, well, why don't you say that? And he, well, I can't because I'll be killed for it. And that's a function of understanding the Americans having abandoned the Pakistanis after the Afghan war in 1989, as they absorbed all the Afghan refugees coming out of there, uh, not being friendly to Pakistan on this, that, or the other. There's Pashtun, which is the majority of the Taliban, Punjabi dynamics, majority, majority between Islamabad and Peshawar. I mean, there's a lot of things that get in there that would, it's not in somebody's self-interest to do the right thing. But they've already come to this conclusion that Islamic jurisprudence, this has been falsely manipulated to say that people who do blasphemy or apostasy should be killed. So the whole point of this is to get people to the rooftop in Peshawar and have tea, whether it's there because of a, of a relationship that's been built or if it's a place outside the country where people come to on a regular basis or bringing 20 imams, rabbis and pastors to uh, Rabat, uh, Morocco, with its tradition of tolerance, you have to create that space where people can get together. And that's the only way these things change over time. So to put a policy perspective on it, we, there's a lot of folks who want to put Pakistan on the country of particular concern list, which is the religious freedom violations list that the State Department puts out. Well, I don't know if that does any good because it's not a function of the state laws. It's a function of the culture. And actually, if you put all the pressure on the state to change their law and the politicians to change the law, that politician's going to get assassinated or that politician's going to lose power. But are there other ways bottom up that we can work through the majority faith and those who are orthodox in that faith leading uh, mullahs and imams to say this is different? And Bob Roberts actually has done a lot of this, and me a little bit as well, with leading imams in Pakistan to, to begin to change mindsets and say, we can work together and we don't have to water down our faith. In fact, I want him to come to heaven with, as a follower of Christ, and he wants me to convert to Islam and finish the journey. Okay, we're never going to agree on that, but we can work together on these things together because both of our traditions support peace and justice, mercy and love. So the anti-conversion laws could, in theory, lead to a situation where maybe we can work together on these sort of things, but actually they they don't work because what they are they are actually preventing multi-faith conversations. And for these multi-faith conversations to work, uh, conversations about faith actually have to be done and done honestly and frankly. And there has to be an openness to the fact that, so for example, in the Morocco situation, it was clear that some of the imams there had been converted from Christianity. And Bob tells me stories of he's in conversations with imams and other uh, Islamic leaders who are either secretly or on the process of converting to Christianity. And everyone who's a part of those conversations recognizes that, that will be the journey for some people, but they're not going to panic about it. And they're still going to feel free to talk to one another, to ask each other questions about each other's faith, and to give the other person the opportunity to share their faith. So uh, there is a there is an implicit rule. We're not going to proselytize. We're not going to try to put pressure on other people. But there is no rule against simply sharing your faith, which is one of the things that the, these anti-conversion laws insist on. To reach that point where you have that kind of maturity with among faith leaders, and therefore hopefully their flocks, and then politicians from the majority ethno-religious group, that just takes, takes a lot of time. And all you can do is do it one life at a time, one engagement at a time, and encourage uh, those in the philanthropic community to say, look, it, I know you want to see a three-year plan and these quantitative metrics, and uh, here's how you're going to do change. But you got to get back to the bigger picture. God doesn't call us to change the world. We engage the world not to change it, but because we're changed. That's the obedience factor. And if we can be in conversations, we will be in a position to evangelize, not proselytize, 
because we've earned the right to speak into the relationship, just like Jesus at the well, which, by the way, begins with submission, right? He asked her for a drink of water. We have to begin with submission as Jesus did, and then let the Spirit flow through that possibility and say, I'm just going to listen. I'm not going to give them the four spiritual laws or her the four. I'm going to listen to where they're at, what's up in their life, what's up with their kids. Many times they have the same concerns about the rapid secularization of their society. We can relate on those things, and then you get the right to say, okay, let's talk about this guy, Jesus. You think this, I think this, but then you want to hear the other out of respect for the other, not tolerance or for the sake of proselytization, which is often more about us than about them. Hey, great discussion, everybody. I really thought it was super engaging. If you would like to listen to our episode with Bob Roberts, who was on earlier this year, it is episode 59. It's a great conversation. As a reminder, you may give us your feedback on social media. We are on Twitter at CT Podcasts. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. We are also in the middle of taking your suggestions and recommendations for other podcasts that you think we should know about. So if you have names of podcasts that you want us to be aware of, please send this to us via social media as well. Now's the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when I ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy this week. But in this case, specific as to Mark because he needs to tell us what's going on in Morocco, since it was alluded to multiple times on the show. Exactly. So uh, Chris summarized the conference very well, and the moments of joy were many, of course, uh, interacting with uh, Jewish rabbis and uh, imams and evangelical pastors about how they... Um, how they are trying to, in these various cities, now it's 20 cities in the U.S. Are so it's, trying, a, it's a group of American clergy. Yes, that were invited overseas by Islamic leaders, especially religious leaders, to get to know one, one another in, the, in their city groups, and then to come up with specific plans to get to know each other. So it meant uh, coming up with a date, a specific date that they would be invited to each other's homes, specific dates that they would visit each other's congregations, and specific projects that they would work on the city that they could work on together, opening a food closet, having a fair of some sort, something that would bless the city. On the way to building those trust relationships so that, especially when a crisis in the community arises that has a religious dimension, they will at least have each other's backs and their congregations will have each other's backs. And they've been doing this in Houston for some time, the evangelical church there has been working with the um, the mosque and the and the, uh, the Jewish congregation to build relationships, and he's been encouraging his congregation to reach out to the Muslim community as they can and when they can. And so after the flood, the pastor is shopping in a supermarket, runs across a woman who's obviously Muslim by the character of her dress. And so he walks up to her, says, how are you doing? How are your friends doing? Is there, what's going on with you? Were you affected by the storm? She said, oh, it was terrible. Our house is flooded. There was mud in our house. It was just horrible. But the amazing thing is this group of Christians came over to our house and, and cleaned out the mud and cleaned up the furniture and really helped get my house back in order. And uh, he said, well, uh, where were those Christians from? I didn't tell me about that. And she told him that, but it was his church. It was his congregants that had done it all on their own. <laughs> and she concluded the conversation by saying, you know, I just didn't think Christians did this sort of thing. So we heard stories like that, <laughs> that were just really remarkable in terms of, certainly from a Christian perspective, to see Christians acting like Christians with people of other faiths and impressing them with the love of Jesus was... Just, you know, it's just delightful. Awesome. Mark, are you 
You have a newsletter that you want to promote? I have a newsletter called the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report, which can be uh, subscribed to at christianitytoday.com slash Report, in which I link to various articles I've read and make commentary on them. Okay, Chris? So I was at a morning breakfast called Daybreak for the Seattle Urban Academy. And in Washington State, 63% of low-income kids never graduate, only 63% graduate high school. And if you're a, uh, a student of color, that drops precipitously. But at the Seattle Urban Academy, 96% of these kids graduate, and it's a longtime vision of the principal there, Sharon Okamoto. And uh, the keynote today was a woman by the name of Phyllis Campbell, from, uh, chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase uh, Pacific Northwest. What's cool about this is that Sharon and Phyllis are both Japanese-Americans with family experience with government and social uh, discrimination and restrictions dating back to the internment camps that FDR set up during World War II. And now you see these two women leading and longtime supporting the Seattle Urban Academy and the best of Christianity, the best of our love your neighbor and redemption, and seeing them giving kids who everybody else has given up on given them a second chance to have confidence, to learn skill sets, and then go on to college. I mean, this is, this is the Christian faith. This is James 1, 2, 27, and looking out for the least among us and giving them an opportunity that they would not otherwise have. And I tell you, I, the stories that I heard today from Seattle Urban Academy is just sua.org. It's a part of Krista Ministries, and full disclosure, I'm on the board at, at Krista. But it's just it's it was just unbelievable. And it just it gives great joy to see these young adults moving forward when we know that they would not have that chance except for this kind of effort at Seattle Urban Academy. Thanks for sharing that. Are you online at all? Yeah, I am. My my Twitter tag or whatever that thing's called handle is just uh, at C-Siple, C-S-E-I-P-L-E. Uh, and the uh, Seattle Urban Academy is just that, SUA.org. And they've got some videos of other stories, but the story that will be posted that we saw this morning is Alyssa's story. If you're not crying, if your heart's not ready to help, uh, you don't have a heart. It's it's just in- it's absolutely incredible. You can tell Chris was a, a Marine once. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I would say my precious moment is hospitality this week. I had people over on Sunday and then yesterday went to my neighbor's house and hung out with her and her family. It's just great to be in people's houses. Love having people over and I love it when people have me over, especially when I get to teach the kids how to do conditioning, ab conditioning exercises. It was great. You're never invited over to my house to do that. With your grandkids. <laughs> I'm on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you for everyone to, for listening to our discussion. As a reminder, please review our show by going to Apple Podcasts. That is the best place to leave us a review. But the podcast is also available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, this podcast is produced by myself and by Richard Clark and by Cray Allred. Thank you, everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today. Again, you can get the magazine at orderct.com slash quick to listen. We'll see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. 
Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.